Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People This Week, it's a Brexit special. I had a very long conversation uh, yesterday night with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It was a good conversation, but it is difficult. When will it end? So here we are again, um, yet another deadline. October was the deadline, then it was November, then the 1st of December, then it was Friday, then it was Monday, then it was the Last Supper, now it's Sunday. God knows what it will be after that. And what does it mean for Boris Johnson? It's absolutely vital that we prepare for a no-deal outcome if we're going to get the deal that we need. I don't think that's where we're going to end up. I think it's a million to one against, but it is vital that we prepare. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi, Arj. Hi, Paul. We've got the director of the UK in a changing Europe think tank, Anand Menon. Hello. Hello, and we've got the Associate Director of the Institute for Government's Brexit team, Maddie Timon-Jack. Hiya. Hi. Well, yes, the Brexit expert Commons People Dream Team is back together because nerves are jangling around Westminster and Brussels as the negotiations go right down to the wire. Boris Johnson went to Brussels this week to try and unblock the talks, but with just three weeks to go to the end of the transition period. And while his fish supper with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen failed to bridge large gaps between the two sides, the UK and EU were at least able to order officials back to the negotiating table, working towards a new deadline of Sunday. Let's just hear von der Leyen. I had a very long conversation uh, yesterday night with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It was a good conversation, but it is difficult. We are willing to grant access to the single market to our British friends. It's the largest single market in the world. But the conditions have to be fair. They have to be fair for our workers and for our companies. And this fine balance of fairness has not been achieved so far. Our negotiators and are still working and uh, we will take a decision on Sunday. Uh, Paul, we've both long thought there will be a deal in the end. Are you starting to get jittery? Uh, well, yeah, I think you've got to downgrade your percentages, haven't you? I mean, I, I used to think it was like 80-20, then it's 70-30, and I think it's now probably 60-40. I still think there will be a deal because it just seems so obvious to the ra- to the rational human being that, that this is all going to come down to a very blunt calculation. Do you want tariffs imposed on January 1st or do you want the potential of tariffs being imposed at some point in the future if X happens and Y happens? And if you get a, a rational person would obviously take the latter. But, you know, maybe we're not dealing with reason, as we know, when it comes to um, the prime minister's approach to, to Brexit. Um, so, I mean, the interesting thing about that meeting um, between Johnson and von der Leyen was what was it about? You know, was it because he just wanted to turn up in person and see the whites of her eyes and just sort of really get a grip of how serious you were about possibly digging in? Was it 
um because it sounds as though it was all really at his instigation rather than hers um was it just a bit of sort of theatrics so in the hope that maybe they would back down and they could come to some quick compromise that he hoped and then he could come back and trumpet it um or was it simply because in his heart of hearts he actually knows he's got to be seen to be the one who's trying every last avenue and that seemed to be after their meeting last night that was the line from number 10 that we're you know we're not going to leave any route to a quotes fair deal untested and of course what is a fair deal is is the whole point of any negotiation you got von der Leyen today saying we're willing to grant access to the single market to our british friends as long as a fine ba the balance of fairness so fairness is at the heart of it but that's in the eye of the beholder yeah anna what what, what do you make of the dinner was it are things really worrying now that why did he go over there? And do you think actually this might be a piece of choreography and that a deal is in the offing? I thought for a moment you were going to ask me about the menu then. I was getting quite excited because I love scallops. But uh, so do I. On, on, what, on what Paul was saying, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, economically rational when you say rational. And I think the one lesson of the last four years is economic rationality doesn't drive politics anymore. It used to, but it doesn't anymore. So why, why in a sense, and we all are surprised, but why we should be surprised by the fact that the prime minister is willing to say, you know what, well, I've got a political principle and I'm willing to pay tariffs to uh, implement it. That's just, that, it's, it's inherent in the logic of where we are. This is about politics, it's about principle. And I have to say, I'm, I'm less uh, certain about there being a deal than I ever have been, simply because on the surface, what we have here is, this isn't a failure of negotiation. This is a, this is a clash of incompatible principles. Uh, and so, it is hard to see how you get round the fact. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful paradox, isn't it? The Commission's concern is inherent in the nature of Brexit. Brexit means the British government can never be bound by anything or anyone because the EU was the only organisation that could do that in the past. So absent that, if we're going to make a guarantee, you either take our word for it, which makes no sense, even if you believe what Boris Johnson says, because he can't bind his successor, or we sign up to something external, because the external is all we have. So this debate is intrinsic to the nature of Brexit, and the two sides approach it from a very difficult and very different position. On the meeting itself, I, I, I'm perplexed like Paul is. I mean, there's a couple of things that perplex me. Firstly, von der Leyen can't change the mandate. So in a sense, you were talking to the messenger rather than talking to the principal. You were talking to the person who can go to the principals and say, hang on a sec, is there any way? But it was a staging post. Second thing I found fascinating, and I don't know what you lot think about this, is they were never alone. Yeah. That is really unusual for a meeting where the stakes are this high, as far as I can see. Absolutely. And do we think that's because Boris Johnson can't be trusted to deal with it alone? I don't know. I don't know whether it's because, you know, you know, I saw some wag on Twitter today saying, you know, David Frost's not going to run the risk of the prime minister doing what he did with the tea shop last year and basically selling the house when he's alone with him. I mean, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it is it is instructive, I think, because I think I'm right in saying that at most other meetings like this, the two principals would have had some time together alone in the room. Yeah, yeah interesting. Absolutely right. I mean, but it might be also because given the tensions on the EU side and the tensions between Barnier and von der Leyen, that actually Barnier insisted that I've got to be in that room. Thank you very much. And, mm -hmm. and that Macron insisted it because there's this real suspicion that, you know, it, it's, it's a bit crude to say it, but that von der Leyen, a close ally of Angela Merkel, is really keen to get a deal at any cost, whereas Macron is saying 
taking the principled view that Anand's talked about. So maybe it's on both sides there was a bit of that. Um, I just well, let's, to... let's not go on record saying the French are being principled. The French are after fish. <laughs> <laughs> just just while we sort of talk around it i just wanted to ask maddie just to explain what the kind of number one key sticking point is i'm thinking on level playing field and yeah, is no, either, exactly. either side is either side being unfair is there a way through i mean i think i think Anne sort of already sort of said it really is that this is a matter of principle so as you say that the issue is level playing field that sort of covers areas like uh, environmental protection consumer rights workers rights um, and obviously state aid as well which has obviously been one of the big things we talked about this year um, and essentially it seems like both sides have agreed that um, there won't sort of the UK won't regress below the standard that we're sort of at when we leave the, the single market at the end of this year. And that seems relatively straightforward. The big issue is essentially what happens in the future, because, you know, unlike all other trade deals, um, the sort of idea of this this negotiation is to sort of introduce divergence rather than sort of head towards convergence in, in a lot of these areas. So the big debate is what happens if the EU um, increases its standards in some of those areas in the future, and then they're concerned that the UK could then become more competitive with the sort of tariff free access to the EU single market. Now, I'm going to be honest, there's a lot of debate on Twitter about exactly what it is the EU is asking for. And it feels like people aren't entirely clear. There's a sort of question about, is the EU saying if the UK doesn't agree to increase its standards in the same way, it can unilaterally sort of, it can impose tariffs, um, but, the, but the UK wouldn't be able to do the same sort of the other way. But we're not, as it, it feels like we're not quite clear what the detail is, but I do think the sort of point about principle, I think it is really important within this because, you know, th this government has said that it wants to increase standards in the future you know it has said that it doesn't want to reduce standards and so in theory you'd think well okay it's it, you're actually potentially you're not going to be unhappy about that anyway um also as as paul's already said you know there's another point about well if you're just sort of staving off the prospect of tariffs at some point in the future why not just take what you can get for the moment and deal with that when we when when you need to um but it, it does feel like the sort of big issue is this point of point about sovereignty and principle and, and from the EU perspective you know you could argue that EU is also you know being slightly unreasonable because yes okay the UK will have tariff free access to the single market but non-tariff barriers are going to remain it's still going to be much more difficult for businesses to trade so it's not a sort of free pass for the UK and for UK businesses so you you know I feel like on both sides we're seeing both sides sort of dig in um, so the EU is so firm on protecting the single market being so sure that the UK will not be able to have any of those benefits or you know that now that it's outside the club and obviously from the UK side it's the sovereignty point and that's sort of why ultimately I sort of agree with Anna and it does feel like it's quite difficult to see a way through because you are going to have to see some kind of compromise I think the interesting question is whether or not we're sort of the EU's position is being slightly overblown in the UK at the moment so that ultimately the PM can sort of row back later um sort of that sort of comes down to what is being briefed and the choreography of it all but but it does feel like ultimately the Prime Minister is just going to have to make a decision um and it just still feels like we don't know what way he's going to go but just well, it, Chiro, can I just say one thing that has been haunting me and um, it's probably for old farts like me and Paul who remember these debates back in the 90s is we could leave the European Union and not be able to touch the working time directive. I mean, how weird. <laughs> you know, if you think about these decades of the debate, if it comes to Brexit, we leave the European Union, but we've committed to keep the working time directive. I mean, that would be a paradox at best. <laughs> so true. And that brings it back to that point about sovereignty, to be honest, because it seems to me the reason I think there's still going to be a deal is because I think this phrase sovereignty really is so transparently bogus. Um, 
and that it's often just a, a, a fig leaf to help the, the, the PM bend off the ERG. By raising the spectre of sovereignty, he's basically just trying to bulldoze the EU into saying, look, we really need a proper pragmatic compromise. I think this is the most generous interpretation. Um, and those negotiators, look, they, of course, if you're on a negotiation, you can do a deal. They can sort out fish. It's about a compromise on timing and the transition. That's easy. On governance, similarly, there's ways around it. There's a way even on this whole idea of the level playing field. If you have some sort of arbitration mechanism that is that the UK is happy with, doesn't involve the ECJ and the EU is happy with, as we've seen in Northern Ireland with Gove's announcement this week, it's very doable. All of it's incredibly doable with a bit of give and take on both sides. That's why I think the sovereignty point is kind of bogus because no free trade agreement really rests on sovereignty. It rests on an agreed set of rules. If one side breaks the deal, then there's an arbitration and there's a way of working it out. That's what happens. There's no such thing as selling your sovereignty in a free trade deal you sign up to rules that's exactly that's what you do you know in a way you slightly park your sovereignty with any free trade deal whether it's with japan whether it's with america whoever so uh, that's why i slightly think that that bit of rhetoric makes me think that's just for the home market i might be wrong i might be completely wrong um and don't forget there's also the element of who's in that room david frost is quite a you know, a hardline Brexiteer in lots of ways. And um, it's not as if he's got Ollie Robbins at his side, put it that way. I just wanted to ask you all, whoever wants to answer this, what do we reckon to the theory of, well, talks are back on, the negotiators have been have been ordered back to the table. So something must have changed for that to happen because they've talked through these issues so often and for so long. What do we make of that theory? Why are they going back to the negotiating table if there's if nothing's changed? I mean, I, I personally just feel like it's really difficult for both sides to, to call it because whoever says, no, we're, we're not going to be able to reach an agreement, they're going to have to take more of the blame, essentially. So I think the EU is going to keep talking. You know, we've heard um, sort of people from member states saying the only deadline that matters is the 31st of December. So I think it's, I think that, you know, why not carry on talking? You don't necessarily want to call time on it. I think from the UK side, I think, again, there's a sort of a slight concern around saying, oh, no, actually, we just can't compromise enough. So I'm not I mean, they obviously did speak for quite a long time. Maybe they do. Th there is a sort of recognition that, look, a deal is possible. We just need to keep sort of chatting through the details. And, you know, the closer we get to the end to the end of the year, the easier it will to sell a deal. I don't know. There might be some sort of logic in that. But I also do think fundamentally there seems to be a real concern from both sides about walking away, which I think obviously doesn't help with the sort of trying to give certainty to, to sort of businesses and people in terms of trying to prepare for what's actually coming at the end of the year. Yeah, and there yeah, well, are a lot of constituents that are going to feel quite significant pain out of no deal. And the one thing you need to be able to do before you start manically pointing to the other side of the channel and blaming that lot is to make it absolutely clear you went the extra mile and did everything you possibly could. Yeah, well, as Maddie mentioned there, even if both sides do achieve a breakthrough, there's very little time to thrash out a legal text and get it ratified by January the 1st. And to the delight of absolutely no one, the government is holding out the prospect of MPs sitting between Christmas and New Year to approve any deal. Meanwhile, Tory Brexiteers are sharpening their knives ready to slice up any compromises the PM makes, and Labour are wrestling with how to vote on any deal. There have been more deadlines than hot dinners in these talks, but Dominic Raab thinks Sunday should be a decision point. Let's hear the Foreign Secretary. 
what we've been doing is communicating uh, all the likely requirements and what the difference between having an FTA and leaving on Australian-style terms would be. But you're right to say, and I certainly accept, we need some point of finality to give them certainty so that they can know which set of rules and which set of um, uh, uh, approaches and declarations that they need to, to, to adhere to. That's why Sunday, I think, is an important moment. You never say never in these talks, but I think we do need to get some finality for the reasons that you give, and um, I think we'll get that on Sunday. I think both sides recognise it's time for that. Um, Maddie, you kind of just mentioned there that the real deadline might be December the 31st, but let's say a deal is struck on, you know, pick a date like December the 28th, how does how does that then come into operation on January the 1st when the transition ends? What needs to happen? Yeah, I mean, December the 28th feels very, very late. Um, but but yeah, I mean, basically, from, from the UK side anyway, um, before they can ratify anything, they do need to pass legislation to ensure that it has effect in domestic law. Um, it, it looks like, and this is the most straightforward way for them to do it, the government is planning on bringing forward primary legislation to get through both houses that will give the, give the deal effect. I mean, the thing to say is that, you know, we we look back, I, you know, remember the, the vote on the, the legislation to implement the withdrawal agreement, there was a lot of outcry about the idea of passing that through Parliament in sort of just two weeks. And in the end, I think they sort of did it across a month, although they did break for Christmas in the middle. Um, but ultimately, as is always the way with Parliament, is if you need to rush things through, you can. You can get legislation through in a day in each house if you really need to. Um, I think that given that what you're looking at as an alternative is no deal, then actually there's going to be the pressure to pass it. So, you know, the government controls time in the House of Commons. It doesn't in the House of Lords, but I can't see the Lords holding up implementing this legislation. And what it will mean, though, is there's very little time to scrutinise what the deal does and also how the government plans to implement it. They'll probably be taking very, very wide powers and we're not going to be quite clear how they're going to use them. So it's sort of slightly... So I think on the UK side, it's definitely more straightforward than, than what we were looking at last year. Um, on the EU side, it's more complicated, where the council has to sign it off, as does the European Parliament traditionally before ratification. And then in some cases, member states also have a look at it, depending on the scope of the deal. And there's now been a lot of discussion about could you provisionally apply an agreement without the European Parliament sort of before they get a chance to vote on it? Um, it feels like sort of there's, there seems to be a sort of reluctance in Brussels to confirm that that is something that they could do, but it does feel like that probably is possible. Um, in which case, you've really got to cross your fingers that come January, the European Parliament doesn't look at it and say, hold on a second, we really don't like that, um, because obviously there's sort of a risk in that. But I think that that basically it feels like and that seems to be the message we're getting is look we can go pretty much down to the wire and we're pretty confident that we can have something in place right and paul presumably johnson easily gets this deal through the commons will he mind about erg as kicking off because he will have to compromise to get something well he would to get a deal but i mean i, I don't think um there's any question if he wants one he'll get one through the part through parliament i mean in the negotiation we've been telling the eu that we can do this in 24 hours that's been made clear from, from our side um the lords obviously wouldn't want to stand in the way of that at all there's not in a million years labor almost certainly as we've talked before i'm pretty sure will back the deal i don't think they're going to abstain but even if they do abstain the tory rebels aren't strong enough so the question then comes down to you know how many in the erg did the pm really prepared to sort of piss off <laughs> to use the to uh, an old english phrase um and i think to be honest that it might be that the erg just gets real and says look it's all right this there's nothing too too 
too taxing about this you know we can try and repair it at some later stage the main point is we're out of europe uh and we can come back to this deal at some point later i mean who knows it might even raise the specter of tearing it all up again we know that prime ministers already tried to do that with uh, breaking international law once we'll maybe do it again yeah and anand it seems like most of the kind of political action if a deal comes back will be on the labor side do you think labor will or should back a deal I've no idea what they're going to decide to do, to be honest. Uh, there seems to be a, a little bit of chaos amongst in labor ranks about this at the moment. I think uh, what I've said publicly is I think ultimately one of the things labor need to be doing between now and a general election is laying that trail from the Brexit deal the prime minister signed to the economic consequences that we'll still be feeling then. And I think that narrative at least needs to be out there. Uh, but what they'll do, I, I wouldn't even begin to hazard a guess. But can I just say one thing on scrutiny that I think is just worth saying? Uh, which is the one lesson we could have taken away from last year is if you don't do scrutiny properly, if the committee stage isn't done, MPs end up signing up to stuff that they later regret. Uh, and it's going to happen again. This is going to be a massive, long document, and it's going to contain all sorts of wonders and horrors that people aren't going to notice on the back of a sort of 24-hour zip-it-through-parliament thing. And whilst I see the reason for doing it, and I see the politics of doing it, it's worth just saying that scrutiny is about more than government and opposition it is about ensuring that the legislation that ends up on our statute books is fit for purpose and you know don't hold your breath on this one now of course we cannot rule out the possibility of the uk crashing out of the transition period without a trade deal the eu is starting to take the prospect more seriously setting out contingency plans to keep planes flying lorries moving and boats fishing uh, but boris johnson insists the uk will prosper in either outcome Let's just hear DEFRA Secretary George Eustace admitting that food prices will rise in a no-deal outcome. I think the, the, the most likely outcome is that food prices will remain stable. Obviously, if we don't have a trade agreement with the EU, we would be applying tariffs to some of those imports. And that's likely to mean that in the short term, there'd be a, you know, a small, modest uh, uh, increase in food prices. Some of the modelling suggests maybe about 1% or 2%. Um, and so... Uh, it's likely that we will be having stable food prices. And let's just remind listeners what no deal from January the 1st would mean. It's not just food prices, is it? And how much worse would it be than a deal? Well, there are several elements to that. Yes, it's food prices because we're paying tariffs and agricultural tariffs can be quite high. Yes, it's the potential for shortages because the queues will be worse. And the queues will be worse in part because... If there's a deal, it's in the interest of the EU and the UK to make it work. And I suspect that in the event of a deal, those on the other side of the short straits, the French, will think, OK, we have to sell this deal to our constituents too. It's our deal too. So maybe we can just be a little bit more flexible than otherwise. In the event of no deal, why would they be flexible? Uh, it's in the interest of the EU to ramp up the pressure as quickly as possible. And we're going through, I mean, there's a whole deja vu thing. The, the Commission earlier today put out its mitigation proposals to keep the you know the planes flying and the trucks going but actually the language around it is so hedged temporary the point of this isn't to completely mitigate the impact of no deal subtext because we want them to feel it uh you know so i think the difference with no deal is partly one of substance and the different rules would be under but it's partly one of politics and the fact that the interests of both sides will not be aligned by any manner of means which will make things tougher yeah, and what would no deal mean for Boris Johnson, Paul? Does he kind of get away with it? He did promise that, you know, this might happen. Well, I think 
it's a massive problem for him if there's no deal, simply because um, if there was a deal, he could say, look, I'm being realistic, I'm being pragmatic. Now let's focus all our energies on what's really concerning the country, COVID. Let's focus on COVID, let's focus on my levelling up agenda, the reason I was elected, and he can move on. If there's no deal, he can't move on because it exacerbates and deepens all those divisions that have shot through Britain since 2016. In other words, they'll reignite. Just imagine if you're a Remainer and you're, you're faced with no deal, we, we've already seen a bit of it on Twitter already. There's this, this like, ah, told you so, you know, all you people up north who voted for, for uh, this, this is what you get. You're going to lose your jobs and vice versa. You get the Brexiteers saying, ah, oh, how dare you be so patronising. And the fact is, in a no deal situation, as Annan's written about it in great length, um, that actually, you know, there would be serious consequences for jobs. There would be serious consequences for everyday life. And if that if Brexit is suddenly impinging on your everyday life, whether you can go to Europe to, to shop, whether you're going to get toys in time for Christmas, you know, wh whether you're not your banger is going to increase in, in, in its price, even just in the short term, I'm talking not medium term in the short term. That's a lot of political hassle um, that he could do without. Yeah. And Maddie, are we actually ready for no deal? I mean, the short answer is no. <laughs> um, the slightly longer answer is, is it, it is a slightly more nuanced picture. I mean, the government has done a lot of work this year. It has. I mean, it's been it's obviously been sort of having to focus some of its resource on COVID, but they have made progress in some of the key areas. Um, but, you know, we are still in the, at the point where some of the key system border systems, for example, are still sort of being tested. They aren't going to be rolled out until sort of just, you know, a week or so before they're going to be needed. Um, so there's definitely, I think, a concern in terms of actually putting in place the arrangements the government claims it is ready to do. But I think the biggest concern is, is the fact that businesses and traders aren't ready. And they there's a sort of a, a sort of combined impact, I think, both of COVID, because, you know, we, we know that a lot of the the sort of cash reserves have been run down, stockpiles are run down. It's just, you know, there hasn't been the bandwidth, um, particularly during the sort of first wave of COVID. There really wasn't any capacity to even think about Brexit. I think particularly because a lot of people thought there would be an extension to the transition period. This sort of, you know, coming into this final stretch, obviously businesses, quite a lot of businesses know they do need to prepare. But again, the sort of the obviously the economic hit from COVID makes it more difficult. But also the thing is, is, is this sort of point around uncertainty. Now, what's really interesting is that a lot of what businesses actually need to do to prepare is very similar deal or no deal, because they are still going to have to prepare for new processes at the border. Um, you know, it will be more difficult to trade with the EU. And in theory, they can, you know, hire their customs agent, if there are enough agents to hire, um, to sort of to, to be ready to take that on. But I think the sort of more challenging part of all of this has been the narrative around it, where I think a lot of people don't quite realise that, that deal still means quite a lot of disruption. And I think particularly those smaller businesses, you haven't been focusing on the debate, you might get most of the sort of, you know, Brexit updates from the papers, then they're not going to be as aware of the fact that a lot of change is coming. And, and so I think that, that that's going to be one of the biggest problems. And that's one of the things the government is preparing for, is the disruption of traders not being ready. Um, so, so I think that all that we can sort of hope is that as much is done as possible between now and the end of the year. And it's, you know, it's worth saying it's, you know, it's not just like central government, it's also local authorities and the devolved administrations. Um, but then I think the, the real challenge for the government is going to come in January when it's trying to ensure that all of those who aren't ready get ready as quickly as possible so that actually the disruption can sort of ease as soon as possible. Um, and I think, you know, talking about no deals, and said one of the challenges is that you're not going to be able to put all of this to bed. There's 
going to be a question about are you going back to the negotiating table probably not straight away if it's because of a political breakdown but then I think there's a sort of challenge about trying to to, to convey that sense of certainty to businesses about what terms they're going to be trading with the EU. Is this all going to change again? Or is this actually going to be our sort of medium term state? Yeah, well, that's all to look forward to. But now it's time for the quiz. Yay. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Uh, it's all about prime ministers in Brussels. So just shout the answer if you know it. Which Prime Minister won an impromptu bicycle race of national leaders in Amsterdam? Tony Blair. Tony Blair. Yes, and Andrew's fastest. fastest I have a point. Is that my first ever point? It could could be. I don't keep a tally, unfortunately. Yeah, it came ahead of the signing of the Amsterdam Treaty when he negotiated an opt-out for the UK from the Schengen borderless travel area. Um, Question number two. Which PM was ridiculed after missing a key signing session of an EU treaty? Gordon Brown. Yes. Uh, I'll give that to... You will not. You'll give it to me. <laughs> both of you. You can both have a point for that. Wait, there's a, there's a sub-question to this. And who did they send in their place? Milliband. Yes. Oh, that's well very good. Yeah, you deserve a it's, point there. It's, it's 3-1, Anna. Which Milliband? David. Correct. Uh, yeah, this is the Lisbon Treaty in 2007. Um, I, I, I didn't quite have time to read the background. Basically, didn't, he didn't turn up because... Gordon Brown decided it would be bad politics to be turning up with everyone for a family photo to sign the Lisbon Treaty, so yeah. he definitely banned. Brown actually went later to do it by himself. <laughs> yeah, he actually did it in person yeah. without yeah. the cameras. Yeah. Oh, really? God, I didn't know that. Brilliant. Yeah. So he signed up to it, but he doesn't want to be seen to be signing yeah. up. Yeah, exactly. nice. Right, good. Okay, final one. Anand's already won anyway, but this is a good question. Um, Donald Tusk famously mocked Theresa May by posting a photo on Instagram of him offering the PM a piece of cake with the subtitle, sorry, no cherries. But where did this... Salzburg. Yes, well done, Anand. Uh, Stunning victory. (laughs) He's not... You have no idea how chuffed I am. I'm so pathetically happy. (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad something's gone right in 2020, Anand. <laughs> it's the definition of a home fixture, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but home fixtures don't matter so much in lockdown. True, true. <laughs> <laughs> right, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels, and please be sure to leave a review. And get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with Michael Gove reflecting on his political career. Um, As for his point about my career ending in failure, my career, uh, I'm afraid, uh, uh, has been marked by failure. Uh, consistently, in so many ways. Um, And um, often in politics, I'm reminded of the words of Winston Churchill, that success means going from failure to failure with undiminished enthusiasm. And that's what I hope to do. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.